Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mate. How's it going, everybody? Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can always go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com to support the show and get bonus content. Including Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, where we try to laugh at the headlines instead of cry at them, and laugh at the media clips instead of cry at them, and extended interviews as well. And this week's guest is Ilan Pape. He's a Israeli historian known as among the new historians, the uh, people inside Israel who gave a radically different picture of Israel's founding, which was based on a series of myths. And Elon Pape is among those who helped expose that contrary to what the world was told, what Israel told itself, Israel was founded on ethnic cleansing. And he's personally paid a huge price for his scholarship, for speaking the truth. And he's with us today to talk about the massacre in Gaza, the mass murder campaign in Gaza in in a historical context. Yeah. So very honored to be able to talk to him. Should we go to the four basic food groups? Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? Yes. What do we have for Democrats suck? So for Democrats suck, let's take a look at this exchange between Abby Phillips of CNN and Pennsylvania Democrat Senator John Fetterman. But there are some real questions about what's happening on the ground in Gaza, about the really extraordinary civilian death toll that has happened as a result of this war. Do you believe that anything that Israel has done in these six weeks of fighting has amounted to a war crime? Of course not. Uh, of, of course not. And, and it's like, let's not forget what Hamas started. They broke the first ceasefire and then they attacked Israel and murdered over 1,200 innocent willy, excuse me, women, children, babies, everything, and, and brutalized it in, in the most you know, unspeakable kinds of ways. Uh, and so that really is the ultimate, you know, you know, criminal war uh, uh, kinds of. This is absolutely an unequiv- unequivocal uh, attack to destroy Israel, and we must remember that that's how started all of this. But are you comfortable, Senator, with the number of Palestinians who have lost their lives? Seven thousand children, fifteen or sixteen thousand civilians dead. Do you believe Israel is doing enough? to minimize civilian casualties? Now, one, you know, one, one death is too, too many. It's a tragic. I don't, I don't value uh, any Palestinian child life any more than, or any less than yeah, my own don't. child as well, too. It's heartbreaking and it's awful. Uh, you know, but I do fundamentally believe that Israel must destroy Hamas to achieve long uh, changing uh, conditions that allow for priests to prosper. Okay, so no war crimes whatsoever. It's very moving and totally unconvincing that he values the lives of Palestinians, because if he did, he would be upset about what's happening. As we can see from this, he's not even pretending to urge caution. Like we have, you know, we've, we keep watching on Monday mornings, that program we do on Mondays, live at YouTube and Rumble. Uh, we keep showing U.S. officials pretending to urge restraint. Uh, behind closed doors, doing it as friends would do in a nice way. They refuse to play judge and jury, but it's obvious that they know that there are war crimes. And that's why they're saying they won't play judge and jury because they don't want to be complicit in war crimes. But for Fetterman, it's not even an issue. He doesn't even pay any lip service to civilians. Remember when Fetterman was like goofy and likable? Yeah. You know, because he had 
undergone some serious medical issues. He was struggling. People felt sympathy for him, understandably. But he's turned himself into like the one of the top villains of the year. Yeah. Um, before he would have been a candidate for, you know, uh, heartwarming story of the year. But now he's literally a candidate for villain of the year. Uh, you know, he was mocking people who were detained outside Congress for protesting the Israeli genocide. He was waving a little Israeli flag. He went to that uh, pro-Israel rally on Capitol Hill, uh, draped in a giant flag. Uh, And he just keeps saying stuff like this. I just, it's amazing. It's a real heel turn, you know, like uh, when a good guy becomes a villain. This is a classic case, Senator Fetterman. Yeah. So very disappointing, and uh, he should just stick to dressing up as a as a pro-Israel supervillain because that's what he is, and that's what he looked like when he was wearing that big Israel flag cape. So that's my Democrat sucking. All right. For Republicans suck, let's turn to what's happening on college campuses. And because you have uh, schools where young people are out there protesting the Israeli genocide, the Israel lobby and its supporters are turning to their familiar tactic, which is just crying anti-Semitism. Uh, Chuck Schumer did it recently with this like 45-minute rant on the Senate floor about how everyone protesting Israel is anti-Semitic. And now we're hearing on TV constant uh, cries about how Jewish students at colleges are not safe. Now, of course, they don't speak about the Jewish students who are out there protesting the Israeli genocide, because they don't count, but right. only those Jewish students who identify with Israel. So here is a Penn student named Eyal Yacobi appearing with Republican members of Congress, including the House Speaker Mike Johnson, to complain about supposedly feeling unsafe on campus. Well, I'm both honored and thankful to be here. I should not be here today. Yeah, probably I should not. be studying for my upcoming finals. I should be taking in every moment every experience as an undergraduate student in my senior year of college. So while I should not be here today, I am. Because 36 hours ago, I, along with most of campus, sought refuge in our rooms. As classmates and professors chanted proudly for the genocide of Jews while igniting smoke bombs and defacing school property. By the way, just so people know, calling for the genocide of Jews is probably saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Yeah. Or it's saying like Biden, Biden, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. Right. And we've seen examples of Israel supporters pretending as if they're saying that we want, we want Jewish, Jewish genocide. genocide. Yeah. 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 Because a couple there's a couple of rhymes in there. The yeah. syllable rhyme. So. Right. So it's one of those it. two. Yes. All right. It's either a call for liberation with equal rights or it's a, uh, a an allegation of genocide, not a call for genocide. OK, let's go back to this very aggrieved student. The neighboring university's president immediately released a statement describing this as a brazen display of anti-Semitism. He went on saying, silence in the face of last night's demonstration of anti-Semitism and hate near our doorstep is not an option for me. Well, the doorstep of the neighboring university is in fact Penn. And in fact, Penn's president did choose silence. The neighboring university's president swiftly denounced the incident, and yet our president cannot. Because the glorious October 7th, and you're a dirty little Jew, you deserve to die, are words said not by Hamas, but by my classmates and professors. So basically, this is like a glorified tattletale session where allegedly someone said something 
And rather than just like whatever, responding to your classmate in however way you seem appropriate, you're running to Congress, the Republicans who control the House and giving a national press conference. And just, I mean, this would be embarrassing in itself uh, if there wasn't a genocide going on. But there is a genocide going on, which this student and the Republicans behind him are supporting. In the case of Republicans, they're arming it and they're letting it happen. And so right now in Gaza, you have colleges being destroyed by Israeli bombs. All the schools in Gaza, all the colleges in Gaza have been destroyed. People have no place to go. Uh, A top UN official just said there's no safe place in Gaza. And this coddled Ivy League kid is whining about feeling unsafe on his campus because some kids are protesting the genocide he's supporting. And I really doubt that someone said to him, dirty little Jew, you deserve to die. And that's the thing. It's so easy to make these things up. You know, you can say anything you want. And these people do say anything they want to uh, portray themselves as the victims. But whether someone said that to him or not, yeah. Okay, so go deal with that. File a complaint at your school if someone said something anti-Semitic. Put him on blast. Put him on blast for being a rank anti-Semite. Yeah. But it's like, where's the national press conference for the, um, like, inside Congress for the three Palestinian students who got shot, including one of them who's paralyzed? Yeah. That's who's facing danger right now. And on top of, I mean, all, all the like irony upon irony. So you have a genocide going on, yet you're, you're the one complaining about feeling unsafe. Then you have the fact that Republicans are the ones who for years have been mocking college students who are trying to shut other people down because they feel unsafe about their rhetoric. That's true, right. This is, like, this is like the exact snowflake behavior that they have always claimed to be mocking. Except Republicans not only are enabling it, they're giving these kids national press conference. And it's obvious why. It's a familiar tactic of pretending to be a victim so you can victimize other people, in this case, the Palestinians of Gaza. Um, also, it's just so rich to see this these Republicans standing behind him, nodding, shaking their heads. Like Mike Johnson is an evangelical who wants the person speaking, the Jewish person speaking, as well as Jews like you and me, Aaron. He wants all of us to go to Israel so we can trigger Armageddon, the end times, and we will be forced to either uh, accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior or ha- or burn in hell forever. So, yeah, obviously real ally. All right. What do we have for Isn't That Weird? So for Isn't That Weird, we have a very interesting video, which is attempting to debunk pinkwashing. Pinkwashing is when um, Israel hides behind its alleged acceptance of LGBTQ people to whitewash or pinkwash its crimes against Palestinians. Now, same-sex marriage, is, it's notable, is not legal in Israel. But anyway, moving on, let's take a look at this video. Pink washing is a term that angry, jealous, purple-haired girls like to throw around anytime fabulous gay guys get along with Jews. Call me crazy, but I'd rather be at a circuit party in Tel Aviv getting head than in the Gaza Strip getting beheaded. I love my Jewish friends, and I love my Israeli friends, and I'm going to remind them of that every single day, and there's not one goddamn thing you can do about it. You're in the streets ripping down posters of kidnapped Jewish babies in your little Yasser Arafat scarves doing your little Jihad Jane cosplay. I'm a gay guy. I know that if I'm going down, I'm going down with the Jews. That's how it works. 
First they come for the Jews, then they come for the gays. They had the Star of David, we had the pink triangle. But that doesn't matter to you purple-haired Hamas lovers, does it? Because you're not actually gay. Something tells me if they started targeting my people, your purple hair would turn brown pretty fucking fast. I don't even know what to say about that, where to start with that. But that thing that he's doing, it's actually very helpful because I was trying to describe and define pinkwashing before that clip. Next time, I'm just going to go, oh, what's pinkwashing and play that clip. This idea that if you are pro-LGBTQ, you should stand with Israel as it bombs Palestinians, including LGBTQ Palestinians, is so absurd. It's so dumb for so many reasons. So and, and just, just from the point of view of LGBTQ people, um, Israel has been known to uh, exploit LGBTQ right. people uh, inside the occupied territories to basically uh, threaten to dox them. And out them. Yeah, out them, uh, unless they become informants, basically. It's just so, uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm speechless listening to that. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. It's. Yeah. I mean, it's also, first they go for the Jews. Okay, they're literally going for the Palestinians right now. Yes, yeah. Where's your yeah. solidarity for them? Yeah. And you think there are no gay Palestinians? You think the pa gay Palestinians in Gaza are happy that this is happening? Anyway, it's it, it, that's really an isn't that absurd, but it's also an isn't that weird. Isn't that weird that he thinks this is helpful to the cause? And what's up with the, the weird angle, like the weird camera movements? That's the least of it, but it's kind of weird also. Anyway, that's my isn't that weird. Pinkwashing. A pinkwashing video pretending that pinkwashing doesn't exist. What do we got for terrible? All right. For terrible, let's check in with the state of modern relationships. And a woman in Florida had a really harsh response to her, her boyfriend's wandering eye. Here's the headline from the New York Post. Florida woman allegedly stabs boyfriend's eye with needles for looking at other women. Ouch. A jealous Florida woman has been arrested for allegedly plunging needles intended for her dog's rabies shots into her boyfriend's eye after accusing him of looking at other women. Sandra Jimenez from Miami and her living boyfriend of eight years had been in an ongoing argument about the man's wandering eye when things escalated into violence, according to authorities. When the pair arrived at their home, Jimenez allegedly seized her chance to teach her boyfriend a painful lesson. When the unsuspecting man lay down on the couch, Jimenez jumped on top of him with two rabies needles that were further dogs and jabbed them into his right eyelid. That's horrible. That's terrible. I mean, that certainly is terrible. Uh, at the same time, you know, it could have been worse. They could have, the needles could have had the rabies, so she could have infected him with rabies. That's kind of what I thought at first happened. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be stabbed with rabies-related needles it's always better to do it with needles that are for rabies treatment than actual rabies. So I salute her for her self-restraint. Right. right. It's true. I mean, if your punishment for having a wandering eye was getting rabies, you, you wouldn't do it, you know? So. Right. Not okay. Um, yeah. But I'm saying it's like, maybe, maybe, maybe that's, maybe she's trying to advocate a solution here. Right. You know, for the wandering eye syndrome. But anyway, that's right. terrible. And I hope he's okay. Because yeah, even she though. Did yeah. Even though you shouldn't have a wandering eye, you sh shouldn't be stabbed in the eyelid. Right. You shouldn't be stabbed for it. Yeah. She did say that it was a self. She tried to say it was a self-inflicted injury, which is kind of amusing. Hmm. Ouch. Oh, no. I poked myself in the eye with a rabies treatment <laughs> needle. Hate when that yeah. happens. 
And that is your four food groups. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. We are so excited to be speaking to Ilan Pape, an Israeli historian and political scientist. He's a professor with the College of Social Sciences and International Studies at the University of Exeter and director of the university's European Center for Palestine Studies and co-director of the Exeter Center for Ethnopolitical Studies. He is someone who challenged the Zionist historiography of Israel as we'll get into in this interview. He also left Israel because his university in Israel wanted him out after he pledged his support for BDS. So he's a very brave voice. He's joining us from Haifa, Israel. He is teaching next semester again in Exeter, but he's in Haifa at the moment. He's the author of several really great books, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, Modern Palestine, and this amazing book, 10 Myths About Israel, which is very readable and I highly recommend. All right, let's go to Ilan Papin. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Pape, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you in this podcast. So many questions for you, but I wanted to ask you about how you became the person you are kind of politically. We interviewed Gideon Levy the other day, and I asked him the same question because it's so rare to find people with your view of uh, Israel and your view of Zionism. And obviously you uh, studied history. I know that that was a big part of it. But can you kind of walk us through from the beginning how your view of Israel changed over time? Yeah, definitely. Um, It was a journey, first of all. It doesn't happen in one day. There's no uh, epiphany. There's no kind of a wake-up moment. Uh, And uh, the journey, I suppose, for different people takes different uh, trajectories. In my case, I think it began uh, with the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon uh, because it was obviously not a war of choice and it kind of shed light on other wars or raised questions of other wars before 1982. And this happened also at the time where I decided to be a professional historian, namely I was uh, already enrolled in a PhD program uh, at the University of Oxford in in Britain, deciding both to look at 1948 as the main subject, uh, but also to do it with the uh, supervision of an Arab professor, which kind of, of course, brought into a perspective I was less aware of before I came uh, to Oxford. So I think the formative period was these uh, early, uh, early 1980s, uh, and it was enhanced by the first intifada, uh, where it was impossible to demonize the Palestinians as the Israelis did, given what we knew about the mode of resistance and the way it shaped. Uh, I would say by, by the ni- early 1990s, the, the journey was completed in many ways, and I was already out of the tribe, so to speak, and... Uh, already persuaded that both my research results 
and my better understanding through more intimate relationship with the Palestinians uh, created kind of a solid position from which I don't think I withdrew uh, ever since. And was there an archive or a document that you saw in the archive that was particularly um, eye-opening for you? I think it was a bunch of uh, or a bunch of ar- documents rather than one, and these were particularly documents which I think were kind of uh, describing in a very military language what was done or was about to be done to the Palestinians uh, as human beings. So it was this kind of dehumanization that could be, uh, I think of an example, uh, an order that would say, occupy the village, uh, burn its houses, uh, expel the people or kill the men. And then it also gives a, a kind of a more specific definition for men as people from the age of 18, something from the age of 14. Uh, this kind of uh, language and orders shook me uh, and really ran contrary to what I was taught or believed uh, about the Israeli army. Uh, and uh, I think these kinds of documents, more than any others, uh, began to, first of all, normalize the Zionists, because I don't think they are the only soldiers who did these things. But it was more than that, because once you uh, connected the, dot, the dots, when you connected these documents, uh, you, you could see a much more, uh, a, a more strategic, strategic uh, uh, planning of this dehumanization. So it was more structural dehumanization rather than just uh, an aberration here and there. And, and then I re-understood some of the early documents I saw, like Plan Damid, Plan D of the uh, Jewish paramilitary groups of Ghana. It suddenly, I read it a bit differently than I read it in the first place, as really, as I called it later on, as a master plan for the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. And for people who don't know that what those plans are, could you just give kind of an overview of why uh, you do consider the founding of Israel to be a plan of ethnic cleansing? Yeah, th- these were these were documents that indicated a very systematic uh, uh, plan of dispossession of as many Palestinians as possible from as many parts of historical Palestine as possible. Uh, this was. Um, a very clear translation of an ideology that regarded the Palestinians as the main obstacle for the creation of a Jewish democratic state, either on parts of Palestine or all over Palestine, depends on which Zionist group we were talking about. That that meant that uh, the Plan Dalit, for instance, uh, was a very clear uh, kind of uh, manual for the forces of how to get rid massively of people who lived in neighborhoods and in villages. So it kind of listed very graphically the actions that the troops should take uh, when uh, occupying a village or occupying a neighborhood. Uh, The bottom line was that eventually they have to expel everyone and uh, uh, demolish whether the neighborhood or the village so the people would not have a way of coming back or would not have a place to come back to. 
and, and that was a very clear uh, kind of systematic planning that, uh, you know, if you compare it to legal literature or scholarly literature, even popular literature on what ethnic cleansing means, it really fits like a hand to a glove uh, as a classical case of ethnic cleansing. And in light of what you know about Israeli history from its start, how does this current moment sit with you? Are you surprised by the scale of the brutality of Israel inside Gaza right now? Not entirely surprised, and yet I think this is the brutality is far worse than I thought it would be. Uh, I mean, I knew that the Israeli uh, reaction to the 7th of October would be brutal. I have no doubt. I didn't think it would be that brutal. Uh, uh, not only uh, in terms of, which is the most important thing, of course, in terms of what is being done on the ground, but also in terms of the language that uh, accompanies the actions. It's, it's like all the filters that Israel used to put on its on its explanation for operations uh, have been removed. So uh, a prime minister that quotes from the Bible and saying we will do to the Palestinian what the Hebrew people did to the Amalek, which as those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that according to the Old Testament, God gave the license to the Hebrew tribe to genocide to the last baby, the people of Amalek who were uh, sitting in, in the land of Canaan. Uh, so, you know, using that metaphor, comparing the Palestinians to the Nazis, um, talking about wiping out uh, the Hamas and sometimes wiping out Gaza altogether. Uh, I mean, I knew it was there in the background. I thought people were at least aware that this is a bit problematic, even for them. So I was surprised at this um, idea. I understand it now better. I think I think what, what they thought, when I say they, I mean Israeli military and political leadership, right? I think what they thought was that the immediate kind of solidarity shown by the governments in the West, for example, donning uh, the Eiffel Tower with the, Israeli, with the colors of the Israeli flag or donning the House of Parliament, in Britain, with the colors of, uh, of the Israeli flag, meant uh, a carte blanche, not only to do what they want, but also to talk about it as they wish, without any fear of being condemned. And, uh, uh, and I think that explains why they let everything out in terms of operations and the language that uh, describes them. So that was a bit of a surprise. I mean, I thought it would be a bit more tamed, but uh, I, I, I think I understand why it happened now the way it did, as I just tried to, to, to explain. I have a lot of questions for you about Hamas, about this moment, about um, how you've described what's happening as incremental genocide. But I think it would be helpful before getting into today to talk a little bit more about the history, because as your very good book, 10 Myths About Israel, lays out, this is a case where history really informs the present. And I think a lot of people, if they understood the history, would be a lot of people who aren't already sympathetic to Palestinians, if they understood the history and were exposed to your debunking of myths, would actually have a far different understanding of the present moment. Can you talk about how some of these kind of foundational myths and, and 
not just foundational myths, but um, revisionist myths of of history affect where we are today and and help explain the demands of Palestinians? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it's very important to put the events of the 7th of October uh, within an historical context. Um, and, and the historical context at least should go back to 1948. Some people would rightly maybe even go to an earlier period, but definitely, oh, sorry, definitely to, to uh, 1948, because uh, 1948 was the, the moment that you, as an historian, you understand the real nature of the Zionist uh, project and the Palestinian reaction to that project. So, so in 48, uh, it's very clear that Zionism falls into the category of settler colonial movements, these movements of European refugees that on, not only arrived as Jews in Palestine, but arrived as Christians in North America, uh, in South America, in Australia and other places, and, and people who really had to leave Europe in many ways uh, uh, and uh, wanted to create a new Europe somewhere else, but chose someone else's homeland as the new place. And uh, as the late great uh, scholar of uh, uh, settler colonialism, Patrick Wolf says, in the moment of the encounter with indigenous people, a logic of the elimination of the native was activated. Elimination that in North America took the form of genocide and in Palestine first took the form of ethnic cleansing. So I think in 1948 what you have is the historical moment in which the settler colonialism movement of Zionism has the historical opportunity, has the historical opportunity to implement its ideas from before of how best to make Palestine a Jewish state and how to make it even a democratic state. I mean, ironically, because they, they wanted so much a democratic state, they needed a demographic exclusivity, namely, to put it in, in simple terms, Israel wanted to get to its first election in 1949 with a huge, if not exclusive, Jewish uh, majority. And the only way of doing it was to uproot the Palestinians. There was no other way. The demographic balance was such that you could not have a democratic Jewish state. Until today, this is the main problem uh, for Israel. So it begins with this idea that uh, how to make Palestine Jewish and de-Arabize it, if, if you want. And 48, and I won't go, there's no time for it, but 48 is, is the moment that this uh, opportunity uh, appears uh, uh, for, for the young state of Israel to, to uh, perpetrate uh, the ethnic cleansing. Now, the relevance of what happened there to today is, in many ways, in the last stages of that ethnic cleansing, uh, uh, which created the Gaza Strip. I mean, what people uh, tend to forget is that the Gaza Strip did not exist before 1948. There wasn't a strip. Gaza was a very nice city surrounded by beautiful countryside that enjoyed the fact that it was located on Via Maris, the road from uh, uh, Egypt to the north. And it was a cosmopolitical uh, part of Palestine. Now, Israel created this rectangle, as you, one can see on the map, uh, of Gaza as a receptor for all the refugees it expelled uh, from the central and south of Palestine. And the last wave of the expellees, of those who were expelled by Israel, lived in villages on whose ruins, actually, the settlements that the Hamas attacked on the 7th of October were established after their ruination. Uh, uh, so, so that's one historical context that I think is important. Then you have a more recent, if you want, historical context. And this is the uh, everything that happened since 1967, 
uh, uh, 56 years of ruthless military uh, occupation uh, that uses uh, means that are usually reserved to maximum security prisons in order to incarcerate millions of Palestinians in two mega prisons, one in the West Bank and one in the Gaza Strip, uh, through collective punishment, uh, arrest without trial, killing of people, expel expelling people, and at the same time allowing Jewish settlements to be built on uh, uh, expropriated Palestinian land, uh, who develop their own subculture of racism and fanaticism that is directed against the Palestinian uh, population. And it didn't matter whether you lived in Gaza or in the West Bank, it's one big family. So whatever happened to people in the West Bank affected the people in Gaza. And then we have, of course, the third and most important uh, uh, context, which is the last 17 years of siege that included four bombardments from the air since 2006 on the people of Gaza, one of the most dense areas in, in the world. People, young people, if you think about it, most of the people who participated in the operation uh, were born into the siege reality. They knew no other reality. They, they were born into the form bombardments. I don't think if people all, always understand what does it mean to be in an urban area when F-16s and later F-35 bomb your neighborhood. This is something that you don't recover. Even if you have uh, survived the attack, you don't recover. It's, it's a trauma for life that, that people can, can hardly deal with. And definitely Gaza didn't have, doesn't have in the last 17 years any mechanism to deal with these traumas. And they are added traumas to the trauma. So, so you have this uh, historical context of, of recent years and more distant past, but it all together is is uh, a history of what I think one can call incremental genocide, not just in Gaza, because for good or for worse, the Palestinians are the worst problem of the Jewish state, and I say ironically, of the Jewish democratic state even. And, and this is why the liberal Zionists are so complacent, uh, complacent in all of this, or complicit, I'm, I'm sorry, complacent in all of this, uh, uh, because uh, the, the only way you can impose on millions of people the idea that their homeland is not their homeland and they have other, the, either the options of leaving or being in an apartheid system, the only way you can do it is with violence and more violence and with force. And of course, people resist. They always resisted. And they will continue to resist however uh, the events uh, will unfold later on in the Gaza and how do you balance discussing October 7th? Because I know, like, for a lot of people, it's very hypocritical, right? They they don't care about violence against Palestinians, and they do care about violence against Israelis. And so there's been a lot of, of, of discourse around that, about kind of showing the double standards, the lack of symmetry. But how do you, as a leftist and as a someone who has uh defended the human rights of palestinians um kind of grapple with judging what happened on october 7th because a lot yeah. of people don't know how to do it they don't want to condemn it i've heard you like praise the the bravery of some of the people who took place who took part in that but also i've heard you condemn the violence so how do we balance that i know it's yeah. a hard question but no no it's not it's a, it's a very important question uh, it's not about the historical context, it's about the moral context. Right. 
Uh, and the moral context is important. It's important. And, and therefore, I distinguished uh, between the military operation, uh, namely attacking the bases and the soldiers who are actually uh, the gaulers of the Gaza ghetto and, 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 uh, and uh, the bravery of attacking, uh, what I think was eight military bases uh, and uh, taking uh, captive tanks and so on. Uh, uh, by, by these people who were ghettoized for 17 years. And I distinguish between that and the brutality shown either by the same uh, guerrilla fighters or by citizens who followed them from the Gaza Strip, it doesn't matter who did it, who, who committed the war crimes. I don't think there's any other way of describing uh, what they did in, in the civilian area. However, uh, I was myself a soldier. Uh, in the 1973 war, uh, I don't know of any uh, moral arm, any moment where armies behave morally when they are in the midst of a civilian space. Uh, that's why I became also a pacifist, not, not just a, a leftist, because there's no way within uh, the, the civilian space uh, that uh, atrocities would be, be avoided. So that, that's one thing. I mean, it doesn't justify it. Of course, it doesn't justify it. And I think it, it actually was acted a bit of a boomerang against the Hamas, this additional action against uh, uh, the civilians. Um, uh, but more importantly, I think, the moral context which is important is to know that as an historian of anti-colonialist movement and of resistance movement, and, and movements against any kind of oppression in our modern times, and even uh, more distant past, uh, it, it's very difficult to find liberation movements of movements who fought against oppression that didn't have these moral aberrations, if you want, these moments uh, that uh, are violation of international law, if you want, or, or, uh, or atrocities. And one should not be afraid of calling them atrocities. The, the issue is not condemning, is not only condemning the atrocities, but to ask whether this condemnation uh, invalidates the justice of the of the struggle. And, and for me, it's very clear that it doesn't. I mean, nothing that happened on the seventh of October changes my uh, total moral, political, and social support for the Palestinian liberation struggle. There's nothing there that happened that makes me question the justice of that uh, uh, liberation struggle, which is what is important. And I always uh, uh, mention two, two historical facts, which are interesting, I think, in that context, uh, to understand this moral uh, position. Uh, uh, there is the, the famous massacre of uh, slave owners by Nat Turner in 1831, uh, which was condemnable, of course, but did not lead anyone to, to uh, invalidate the justice of the struggle against slavery and the massacre by uh, the uh, members of the Algerian liberation movement in 1962, in, in July 1962, they massacred settlers and their families, French settlers and their families in the city of Oran in Algeria. But nobody said after that that because of that, the struggle for the liberation of Algeria is unjustified just because you had these, these ideas. So we can explain why these things happen. We can understand the situation that happened. We can condemn what we want to, what we should condemn. But uh, to say to us, which is what the Israelis and their supporters in America tell us, 
you cannot say but. You cannot say there is a context. You remember the, the vicious attack on the Secretary General of the United Nations when he said that the Hamas operation has to be is condemned, but he wants to, to understand it was a context. This didn't is, happen in a vacuum. Didn't happen in a vacuum. This is very worrying because what the Israelis want to do is to use that event to absolve them from all their criminal policies before the 7th of October and definitely to provide this moral uh, support for what they're doing now. And this is why we should insist on the context, because otherwise you will remain with a pretext. Mainly the Israelis are using 7 October as a pretext to do what they always wanted, regardless of how many people were killed and how these people were killed, right? Which right. is something, actually, I feel much more uh, I feel morally authentic and trustworthy and, and genuine in my in my sorrow for, for what happened to the young men and women uh, and children. They were attacked. Some of them, I, I know the families myself. Uh, uh, I feel much, I think my sympathy is far more genuine than that of the Israeli politicians in general who, who are using that as a pretext rather than as a, uh, as a reaction because they're so so troubled by what happened. Well, speaking of historical context, I want to read you a quote that I know you're familiar with. This is from Moshe Dayan. He is a famed Israeli military leader. And in 1956, 1956, he spoke at a funeral for an Israeli soldier who had been killed by some Palestinians living in Gaza. And Dayan said this, he said, let us not cast the blame on the murderers today. Why should we deplore their burning hatred for us? For eight years, they have been sitting in the refugee camps in Gaza, and before their eyes, we have been transforming the lands and villages where they and their fathers dwelt into our estate. That's Moshe Dan in 1956. So I wonder if you could talk about that quote uh, and the significance of it in Israeli history. I know it's very famous. He goes on to say, though, that rather than making peace with these people, we need to be basically be even more aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is uh, you have, probably you have to be an Israeli to to understand why it sounds so logical to Israelis to say that the Palestinians have all the right to hate us, to fight against us, uh, even to kill us, and that's why we have all the right to do the same to them. I, I remember uh, when I just appeared on the public uh, stage in Israel in the early nineties as a new historian, as they used to call me, I gave lectures in, in various places. And one of them was the Weizmann Institute, where you have these uh, scientists who see everything in black and white. It's very, very difficult to talk with scientists on moral issues. They, 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 they have this blockade that allows them to do all kinds of things later on to animals and human beings, but that put that aside. They were the most receptive audience I had when, in a time when a lot of people I talked to in Israel very antagonistic to what I told them I found in the archives. Either did not believe me or claimed that I didn't understand and so on. So it was very difficult to, to have a dialogue with Israeli Jewish society. They said, wow, we didn't know all these things. But now we understand that we have no other choice but to destroy them because of what they did to them. I, I Because my mind doesn't work like this, I cannot comment too too much about it because but I'm so familiar with it I'm so familiar with it it, it kind of creates a peace of mind in these people a, a peace of mind by saying oh we understand what they're doing and well 
you know, but but let's 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 face it. If you really go a bit deeper into Diane's speech, uh, the it was a eulogy on, on Rui uh, Greenberg, the guy the guy who was who, who was killed. If you go deeper, you can see that this is actually a dehumanization of the Palestinians. It's almost like uh, a hunter who would say, I really respect the bravery of the lion that I'm going to kill. Uh, it, it's not a respect for human beings. Because if he, if he really thought that way, at least he should have considered right of return, right? <laughs> at least he should consider stopping the, the operations against the Palestinians. But that was not at all the trajectory of his mind, right? I mean, it was this... And we know it from American history. These savages, I mean, yeah, good for them. I mean, they're really fighting for for their life and so on. Uh, and it would be difficult to destroy them. But but we are. We, we, will, we will have to do it and we will do it. This is something that I would not search for a logical structure here. Uh, and I would leave the contradictions as they are because they're part of that what I call the Israeli uh, mentality. Uh, it's kind of that DNA of, that, that is born out of the historical experience and, 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 and uh, indoctrination that the society goes for. But, but I think at the heart of it, which is true about every settler colonial project, you have to dehumanize the native and the indigenous. Otherwise, you cannot think big on expulsions or, or genocide. It's kind of like the Benny Morris, isn't it? Kind of the Benny Morris line of, yeah, there was ethnic cleansing, but we should have done more or we wouldn't yeah. have the problem we had today if we had done more. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, I, it's not, I wish it was only Benny Morris. Right. For him, I didn't expect much more. But I heard the, the dean of faculty of law in the Haifa University explaining to me that had all the Palestinians been expelled from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, there would not have been a conflict. Right. Let alone that this is not true, by the way, because the conflict, what he calls the conflict, would have taken place in a different form, but it would have still been there. The idea that this is the way to uh, solve the issue by expelling even more people uh, from someone who is dealing with law and international law uh, is, again, if you, if you face them with this astonishment about the immorality of these logical statements, they, I, I genuinely think they don't understand what you're talking about. They think they're really building a logical kind of scientific argument here. No Palestinians in the West Bank, no problem of the West Bank, right? How the Palestinians are not there doesn't matter, but they're not there. Uh, this is very difficult to deal with uh, because the inner logic of these people says to them they're not only logically right, but also morally right. Uh, but luckily they get responses for enough people from the world who challenge them. Yeah. How much is it that, because what makes, I guess, the settler colonialism of Israel unique? Well, there are a couple things. One is like the anachronistic nature of it, right? Like this happened in a lot of other places, but earlier. And then the other thing is the coinciding with the Holocaust. and. Mm -hmm the exploitation of that trauma and devastation to justify, ironically and disgustingly, ethnically cleansing and genociding other people. 
but how much e- how much easier did it make that do you think like and did people really think that they were going to a place where what had been done to them in europe could be done to them here yeah well, well i think it's a bit more complicated and it's a mix it's a mixed picture in a way uh on the one hand the historical timing for colonizing palestine is not a good timing it's in a period when the West, or you can call it the Global North, begins to talk about decolonization for the first time. At least the left in the West is not at all keen on colonization and begins to see the anti-colonial struggles uh, as something it would support. Uh, and so, so Zionist colonialism appears actually against the run of history. Right. If you want. Uh, when decolonization starts, it enhances colonialism, actually. So that, that, that creates a problem that is still with Zionism until today. It just takes time for, for, for people to, to understand that. But, but that, uh, the seeds of this problem were, were sown by that historical timing. On the other hand, you're absolutely right. What kind of mitigated this problem was the Holocaust. Um, because the Holocaust provided the West, even those who were you know, beginning of thinking about decolonization, like the Labour Party in Britain that definitely wanted to decolonize uh, the, the empire, uh, or the left in France that wanted to decolonize the French empire, to to feel that this is outside the story of colonialism. This belongs to a different history, the history of anti-Semitism. And Zionism provides the best solution uh, for the Jewish question of Europe without any need to deal with the Jewish question of Europe, namely, Instead of European asking themselves, not only the Germans, all of those who uh, eagerly helped the Germans to, to eliminate not just Jews, but also other people, they don't have to deal with this racism because Israel is the answer to anti-Semitism and has support of Europe for that. Uh, and, and therefore, if you want, the kind of uh, sentence that accompanies these uh, uh, ideas is that we are creating a small injustice in order to correct a, a big injustice. Uh, and, and that really helps Israel. I, 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 do, I really believe that without the Holocaust, it would have been very difficult to get the international support for a Jewish state uh, that Israel did receive in, in, in 1947. Now, to the last bit of your, of your question, were they aware of what they're doing? So, so first of all, uh, you know, as you know, also on, on personal level, being a victim of abuse doesn't mean that you are not come, becoming abuser right. yourself. And, and we've seen it uh, uh, not just in individuals, we've seen it in, in, in people as well. But I come back to the dehumanization. The important thing was, was, and this is very clear in the Zionist propaganda from very early on, the important thing was to dehumanize the Palestinians. And if it doesn't work, and for some, some of these immigrants who came from Europe were not ideological. So they didn't understand why they had to dehumanize the people who helped them, who showed them how to cultivate the land or share a business with them. They didn't understand why, why they needed to hate them. Uh, uh, in order to, to overcome this problem, when dehumanization was not catching up with everyone, was to create this connection that we can see also in Israeli propaganda today between the Nazis and the Palestinian national movement, the Palestinian resistance, right? by Nazifying the Palestinian resistance. Uh, and therefore, you can do to them what you would have done to the Nazis had you had the opportunity of, of revenge. So 
I, I think this explains it. The last thing I want to say is most of, at least in 1948, most of the uh, Israeli and before that, shall we call them Zionist troops, that participated in the ethnic cleansing were not survivors of the Holocaust. The percentage of those who survived the Holocaust and became part of the military apparatus that uh, perpetrated the ethnic cleansing was very minimal. So most of them were not, did not experience the Holocaust. They did experience anti-Semitism uh, in, in, in Europe in the late 19th century and early 20th century, but they did not experience the Holocaust. Uh, and they developed this settler colonial mentality through the uh, 40 years before, the, uh, or 50 years before 1948, and they already viewed the Arabs in Palestine as, as natives, as, sorry, as savages, uh, as usurpers who took over a land which is not theirs, and, and they allowed themselves to think about how best to get rid of them. In the U.S. right now, there's a lot of discussion about purported anti-Semitism on campus. Uh, Congress just passed this measure saying that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. What is your reaction to all this? I mean, at a time when Israel is committing mass murder in Gaza, you're seeing this intense focus on alleged anti-Semitism in the U.S., and even trying to equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. That was historian Elon Pape, and how good to hear from him. I really appreciated all of his insight. Uh, and a rare, as you said, Katie, before, extremely rare voice inside Israel. The amount of people who are willing to be honest about Israel's past and its present is very, very small. And uh, he is among those who deserve a lot of appreciation for all he's done to enlighten us about the reality of Israel uh, from its very origins in 1948. It's really exciting to talk to someone who has done so much, I think, to uh, argue for something that should not need arguing, but that is the human rights of Palestinians. And his scholarship uh, ranging from his excellent book, 10 Myths About Israel, to uh, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, to uh, another great book he wrote, The Biggest Prison on Earth, uh, is really enlightening, and everyone should read his books. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com to support the show and get bonus content, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. And make sure you get that bonus content because Ilan Pape provides some very interesting uh, historical background into Hamas. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.